And welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Rare Bird and High in the Morning. It's because that's the title track of the new Grapefruit Cherry Red box set, High in the Morning, British Progressive Pop Sounds of 1973. 
And as always, I've got David Wells, compiler of that wonderful set here, to talk about that album. So the idea for that set is there's a bit of progressive, but there's a melodious, poppy edge to that prog. Yeah, it's really not so much like the the twenty minute one sided album, Yes Songs, Topographic Ocean, something like that. It's the more more commercially based progressive rock um, sounds from that time. It's kind of a spin-off, really, from the first one we did was 1967, which was the psychedelic pop sounds, obviously, and that was uh, really well received. And so we extended it, 68, 69, and then said, well, we might as well go on to the progressive pop stuff as well in the early 70s. And so now up to 1973, um, we have dotted about a little bit. We've covered from 65 onwards, and uh, 73 is the latest one now. And it is, yeah, it's a four-hour set devoted to... Either hit singles or things that were conceived as possible hit singles, really, rather than, like I say, the more self-indulgent stuff that, that was happening at the time. A Rare Bird, an example of a group in the early 70s that evolved from bands with more of a late 60s feel and, and then morphed into something a bit more progressive? That's right, yeah. They they were spin-off from two bands, really. Um, there was the Harmony pop band Tapestry, recorded for NEMS, and then there was Fruit Machine, who were a Southern Music Spark label band. Uh, and they kind of really came together from those two bands. They did five albums, although the original founder, um, Graham Field, left after the second album, I think it was. And they made three albums after that. Still really classy, progressive pop stuff. High in the Morning was a Paul Corder song. Again, Paul Corder's quite an interesting figure. Sadly, died a couple of years ago, but uh, was involved in a lot of uh, different projects. And uh, High in the Morning, yeah, one of his songs. And, um, yeah, really classy um, three-minute, three-and-a-half-minute pop song. But uh, don't even think it was a single. Just one of those things where you chance upon it on an album and you think, why Why didn't that come out as a single? Um, it's a great track and I had Paul on before he passed away and he, oh, right. okay. he told me uh, directly that it was about the estrangement of life in the world and being alone at night when you, you're in that music scene and, and slightly detached. Yeah, I think it was about uh, the fact that he was a songwriter primarily and Songwriting is a fairly solitary occupation, so I, I think that's what it is about, that uh, he's writing late at night and he's feeling he's kind of alone in the world, and uh, I don't know if Rare Bird took that on, on board or not, but um, uh, yeah, that's a nice uh, song. And Steve Gould is a, was a really good singer too. And next, David, we've got Manfred Mann's Earth Band and Joybringer, and um, this being a track that really kicked off one of the next eras of Manfred Mann, the uh, musician. That's right, yeah. He'd, um, after 69, he'd, um, he'd ended the original Manfred Mann, obviously with Mike Darbo by that point, uh, and he'd gone in that kind of jazzy direction, which I think he said later was a, a reaction to the fact that he felt, that, in, to quote Godly and Cream, that he was working in a hit factory with the original Manfred Mann. So, again, he kind of, in the, for a couple of years, he went in the more self-indulgent, jazzy direction. Uh, but then Joybringer came out in 73 and was a top 10 hit. First first hit single he'd had for four years since Dragon Muffin Man. But it, it, it showed a new kind of uh, maturity, if you like, more kind of a prog rock direction. 
And after that, I think he got back in the, the habit of, of trying to score hit singles. Obviously, they had Davies on the road again, a couple of Springsteen songs as well. But Joy Bringer kind of brought them back into the public attention, really. I had um, Chris Thompson, who joined uh, Manfred Mann's Earth Band after this period, uh, I, I recall. And Chris was talking about the way that Manfred Mann is in relation to the Earth Band, works his band really hard, very clear in terms of what he wants and has an excellent way of picking out a, a song from another songwriter that he thinks that works in that setting. Yeah, he, he was always good at picking songs. If you go back to the mid-60s and, um, you know, they'd do uh, Dylan's, obscure Dylan songs, they'd, uh, they'd do up-and-coming writers like Randy Newman, uh, be John Simons, my name, uh, my name is Jack. So he always had that knack and... Although I think with Manfred, Man, uh, with the uh, the Earth Band, um, his discovery of uh, Springsteen was down to his neighbour Alan Clark. They lived close to each other in London, and Alan Clark was a big fan of, of early Springsteen. First person to cover his songs, I think he was the first person to cover. Was it Blinded by the Light? But his record company said it would never be a hit. And so Manfred Mann leapt into, into the, the gap. I bring joy and I Yeah. 
So now we have Steeler's Wheel and the single of their star. This was the period when they'd gone to a duo, is that right? Yes, they'd initially recorded as a band with Joe Egan and Joey Rafferty at the helm, but with other musicians as well. Then Joey Rafferty walked out, at which point Stuck in the Middle With You became a big hit in America. So he was persuaded to rejoin the band, but he'd only do so as long as he was able to continue with his old friend uh, Joe Egan uh, and the rest of the band were sacked. So at that point, they'd, they'd gone back to a duo. And this the reason I wanted to use this really is because everybody talks about Steelers Wheel as Joe Rafferty's band, but Joe Egan was just as important. In fact, Joe Egan, when they played together in the mid-60s in the, in the Mavericks and the Censors, uh, it was Joe Egan who was the lead singer and Jerry was the rhythm guitarist and backing singer. Um, so yeah, this is a, a Joe Egan song and also a lead vocal. And because they sounded so similar to each other, there's still people on YouTube saying, about, oh, great Joe Rafferty vocal there. Uh, and it's not him at all. He's just in the back in the background. A great song as well about about the uh, the pitfalls of fame, how you think that the world revolves around you. Is this a Labour and Stoller production? This is from the second album. Uh, yes, I think it is, yeah. Although I don't think that, I, guess I don't think Joe Rafferty got on with Lieber and Stoller, but I don't think Joe Rafferty got on with anybody really. So. <laughs> Lieber and Stoller, um, they also did produce Procol Harum as well in the in the seventies. They did. I think it must have been a, an awkward situation where you've got these living legends of songwriters um, dictating to uh, these uh, younger musicians what they should be doing. Uh, I think um, it's the same with the. Um, Tommy Boyce, who was the songwriter for the Monkeys, who, who then started working in this country as a producer and, and worked with bands like the Pleasers and all that. And you can kind of see the appeal for younger bands of working, like I say, with these famous names. But music had moved on by that point, and um, I, I think some of them thought that maybe it wasn't quite the picnic they expected it to be when they worked with, uh, like I say, musicians, songwriters who'd been around for 15, 20 years before then.
Now we have another single, also from 1973, and that's Kevin Ayres and Caribbean Moon, and another example of just a great off-kilter pop. Yeah, it's one of those things that Harvest released it three times. They were convinced it was going to be a hit, and it wasn't because Kevin Ayres, I don't think he'd have put a lot of work into promoting it or anything like that. I don't know how he viewed kind of a throwaway pop single, really. Yeah, this is a great, uh, great song. I wonder if it would be made nowadays. Uh, obviously, you've got some hmm. very upper-class Englishman, white Englishman, singing in a kind of West Indian accent. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure it, it would be looked on favourably these hmm. days. But then we're talking 50 years ago. So, um, great talent, Kevin Ayres, sadly now passed away, of course. Uh, and he was a big influence on on a lot of people. I think um, Brian Ferry. Especially, I think if you hear that kind of deep, sort of sonorous tone, that that's very, almost like a crooner, and it's very similar to what Ferry came up with in in Roxy in the early days. So, when uh, was Kevin managed by um, John Reed, who uh, was Elton's also Elton's manager? I think it was around this time. In fact, there's a video on YouTube of uh, Caribbean Moon, which has got three semi-naked male dancers camping up in the background and I mean there weren't that many videos from that Mm. time anyway of course but uh, that's got to be one of the campiest 70s videos and I think the joke was that uh, Kevin Ayres was famously a ladies man shall we say and John Reed his new manager wasn't Uh, and I I think I think John Reed would have concocted the video I I don't think Ayres and the dancers are in the same room at the same time I I think it's been put together to make fun of of Kevin Ayres a little bit I know he was very disappointed with John Reed's management of him John Reed said he was going to make him into a star you know next Elton John and all that sort of thing but I think he did his best work at Harvest a year or two earlier Stop 
So next we have Prowler and Pale Green Vauxhall Driving Man. I think quite a few people have heard this, but this is a, a slightly different version to, to what some people will be familiar with. Yeah, this didn't uh, didn't come out at the time. It's uh, one of my favourite kind of uh, uh, stories of, of early 70s British pop, really, that it's about a pervert basically trying to get young schoolgirls into his car, but the BBC banned it because it mentioned the car trade name Vauxhall. <laughs> not, not because of the... Uh, they didn't ban it because of the nature of the song, but just because you couldn't advertise. So, um, so yeah, on the release version, it, where Vauxhall appears in the title, it, it's down as hmm. And I think it was Chris Thomas who played Moog's synthesizer just at the point where the word voxel should have been and it sounds absolutely bizarre i mean there's no way you'd hear that on the radio and think i must go out and buy that so this is the the original uncensored version with voxel reinstated and it makes more sense with that in place prowler was a pseudonym yeah it was martin briley and brian engel who'd been in uh mandrake paddle steamer uh, and then went on to do the the Liverpool Echo album, the uh, the Ersatz Mersey beat uh, album. Although Brian Engel also ended up in the New Seekers touring band, so uh, strange old career.
And next we have Medicine Head and Rising Sun. So this was uh, post John Peel Dandelion. Yeah, like Clifford T. Ward, um, they only had success really after uh, John Peel's label Dandelion collapsed and they'd moved over to a bigger label. Yeah, this is a much more commercial sound than Medicine Head when they were with John Peel. That that was more of a kind of lo-fi R&B. Yeah. This is much more of a pop production, really. In fact, it's very similar to what Hot Chocolate were doing around the same time. Yeah, another really strong song and another sort of, I think it got to number 11, something like that, another top 20 hit anyway. And yeah, they had a couple of years of... Um, strong releases before John Fiddler went off to join the reconstituted Mott the Hoople after after Ian Hunter had pulled out and British Lions as well they eventually became didn't they
Next, we've got the Sutherland Brothers and Quiver, You Got Me Anyway. So, this is an Ian and Gavin Sutherland project? Yeah, this was uh, after they'd, um, they'd left uh, New Generation and on Spark and come down to London. They were based in Stoke at the time. Everybody goes on about them always being Scottish, but they'd actually left Scotland when they were eight, nine, ten years old and moved down to Stoke. They came down to London... And uh, got a contract with Muff Winwood at uh, Ireland, and they made a couple of really nice, uh, well, one really nice album with uh, The Pie, I think, um, which had the original Sailing on, which was picked up by Rod Stewart. Yeah, they they did two albums, and then it was decided that they needed a a proper full-time backing band as opposed to using session musicians. And they amalgamated with Quiver, Tim Renwick band, really. And this was the first thing that they did together. I don't want to love you, but you got me anyway. Didn't do anything at home, but it was a fairly sizable hit in America. Again, a really strong song. Uh, Sounded great on the radio. Yeah, still does 50 years later. Quiver were were established, weren't they, before this? um, I don't know about established. They'd done two albums for Warner Brothers, but they hadn't sold, and they didn't really have a songwriter in the band, not not what I'd call a songwriter anyway. So, I mean, that they had two bands had different problems. Um, Southern Brothers had the songs, but not the musical muscle, and Quiver had the musical muscle, but they didn't have the songs. So it made perfect sense for them to uh, to work together. And, of course, Tim Renrick and uh, Willie, Willie Wilson, the drummer, uh, later went on to be in the Pink Floyd touring band. songs and 
And you talked about the Sutherland brothers and Quiver kind of aligning and sensational Alex Harvey band being an example of Alex Harvey joining up with uh, Tear Gas. That's right, yes. I think um, the band Tear Gas were employed to back, to back Alex at the marquee, I think it was. Obviously, it worked well, and they decided to sort of pool their resources. They made the album framed initially, which is good, but it's the second album next, which to me is their, their classic album. Um, some some great stuff on there. Faith Healer is amazing. There's the, the, the Jacques Brel title track, Last of the Teenage Idols, which, which I included a couple of years ago on the glam rock compilation that we did. Uh, and this is Swamp Snake, which is a lot of fun. Great vocals by Alex there, and I assume that's Zal Clemenson on guitar? That's right, yes. Yeah, um, that, that album didn't really, I mean, it came out in 73, didn't really attract any attention until, or not much attention anyway, until they had a hit with Delilah two years later. And then a bit like Bowie in 72, 73, everybody rushed out to get their back catalogue, and um, next, I think, became a hit album, finally charted in, in 75, two years after it came out because of that.
and very apt for the weather at the minute the kinks and sitting in the midday sun and um this single was uh, also on preservation act one and the last gasp of that golden period of the kinks and, and ray davis's songwriting for me i think so i think um i think it's generally considered that these uh, as they became more theatrical in the mid 70s that kind of took ray davis away from the three minute pop single but uh as you mentioned, Preservation Act 1, it's still got some great three-minute tracks on there. Here's, here's one of them, Sitting in the Midday Sun. Quite kind of an echo, really, of things like Sunny Afternoon and Sitting by the Riverside on the on Vintage Green Preservation Society, but still, still a great song in its own right. Now, I know Ray, Ray was quite dismissive of it at the time, but I think it's held up really well. Uh, there's some some great songs. Uh, one of my favourite being Sweet Lady Genevieve. I mean, that's just a, a fabulous song as well as this one. Yeah, like I say, the only thing is that when you get to those theatrical albums, you do have to pick and choose a little bit. One <laughs> <laughs> uh, of the Survivors is on that album as well. That's really good. Uh, he's an old-fashioned rocker, really. I, th- I think that was the case with Preservation Act 2. Yeah, then they did Schoolboys in Disgrace. And again, that's got some good songs on there. No, But I think by then, people thought, oh, The Kinks, another theatrical album. And it was only when they went back to basics, really, after they signed the Rister in the late 70s uh, and became like almost like a stadium rock band that they started to have hits again in America. Really interesting diverging paths uh, between The Who and, and The Kinks. In 1970, you'd think that The Kinks would continue that run of success and uh, The Kinks' fortunes ultimately sort of dwindled and The Who blasted off. Yeah, I, I think... Ray Davis was always a bit more idiosyncratic than Pete Townsend. Pete identified that mod audience early on in their career. And I think when he was stuck around the time of Lifehouse, he did go back to almost like a classic rock sound. And then, of course, Quadrophenia. And it's true that they became a heritage act, whereas the Kinks, like I say, were a little more idiosyncratic in terms of what they did. I mean, it, The Who had lots of 60s hit singles as well, but the Kinks seemed to have a new single out every six weeks or so through Pie, and the market was saturated a little bit. And I think maybe Ray Davis got a little bit fed up with that. Period before this is is currently seeing a, a ratio with the Muswell Hillbillies era, but I'll be interested to see if that continues into preservation as as their uh, fortunes. Well, Muswell Hillbillies is a really interesting album because it's kind of a country rock thing. Um, yeah. And I know Ray Davis said that was the happiest period of his life when he was going down to the local tavern in Archway and and listen to what he called bad country and western <laughs> but yeah i mean even even the idea of muswell hillbillies you know making fun of the uh the area in which they grew up and comparing it to the beverly hillbillies that wasn't really a pete townsend idea mm. you know and i know that that when um the who did uh have their first hit single i can't explain you know ray davis confronted pete townsend saying you've stolen our sound so i, I think i think pete townsend was a was a little bit more cynical Um, without offending any fans who are listening. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sitting by the side of a river Underneath a pale blue sky I've got no need to worry I'm in no hurry
Nato Artist, who's also uh, seeing a, a recent reissue campaign. I think Al Stewart's got a box set out. And we have Terminal Eyes, which is... Uh, it was from the past, present and future period. Yeah, that album is kind of a history of the 20th century, according to Al Stewart. So in the, to cover the future period, after because it was made in 73, I think he's got the Nostradamus song on there. But Terminal Eyes is about 60s. It's basically a rewrite of I Am The Walrus, and that's self-confessed by Al Stewart. So it's got those swooping strings. Obviously, it's a much cleaner production. But yeah, Terminal Eyes is basically for Eggman Everywhere, I think Al Stewart wrote on the original um, album. But it did come out as a single. Um, Again, probably a little bit too idiosyncratic to be played on the radio. It's got that kind of phasing as well, that late 67 era phasing on it. So... um, not sure what Radio One would have made of that at the time. Yeah, it's interesting that material material for for Alas. The production element of his style started to come increasingly to the fore as he 
which augmented or moved slightly away to the sort of more folkier roots. I think he's got a, a cleaner sound by then. I mean, you, you can say that it eventually led two or three years later to Year of the Cat, which again is almost um, a middle-of-the-road pop sound almost. It's a very clean... Mm. Uh, again, that's Tim Renwick, isn't it, on guitar? So, um, yeah. so again, we just mentioned him in terms of Southern Brothers and Quiver. Um, I think um, Al Stewart did become less folky and more commercial. Although, again... Uh, even past, present and future, has to put in the sleep notes. It's a serious historical work, you know, an overview of the 20th century. <laughs> You'd have to have a lot of self-confidence to get away with that.
now we have a band very synonymous uh, with the era, 1973 and Do The Strand from the excellent For Your Pleasure album. Did you feel it was a must-do to put Roxy on this set? If I had my way, I'd put Roxy on every set. Um, the early <laughs> stuff, anyway. The first two or three albums, well, first two albums especially, mm. to me, that's as good as it gets. Um, you know, in 72, 73, it was Bowie and Roxy who were the important figures as far as I was concerned. And, uh, yeah, Do The Strand wasn't a single for, uh, at the time. I think it did come out a few years later when Ireland were trying to get a little bit more mileage out of the album and Roxy were on hold sort of indefinitely. Um but uh, yeah, this is um, For Your Pleasure, such a great album, and this is such a perfect three-minute song. It's so clever. Yeah, like I say, I'd have Roxy on every every album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they had an embarrassment of riches at the time, and also it was a it was a period when it was considered to be um, a bit naughty to put out singles from the album in this country. So you know, Paul McCartney was doing the same thing around that time with non-album singles um, and Roxy uh, would record Pajama Armour and of course A Vision in a Plane rather than actually having them on the original UK albums I think they were put on the US albums but um, mm. in this country it was, it was considered to be um, a bit uh, a bit under the arm to uh, to get people to buy the same track twice A great example of a band that drew from or, or kind of straddled some of the pigeonhole genres times when they broke out there was prog, there's pop and, and obviously the the glam element Absolutely, I, I know some people will say well, Roxy weren't a progressive rock band well, it doesn't really mean a great deal um, they were an art rock band and they really did push the envelope and this as you say, they, they Nobody makes music in a specific genre, or they shouldn't anyway. So you can say that Roxy Music were part of glam rock, they were part of pop, they were part of progressive, because um, it was a new sound. And to me, they were as progressive as, say, King Crimson from the same mm. time. Mm, absolutely. Who, who were who, you know, managed by the same company, EG. In fact, I think uh, Brian Ferry actually auditioned for, for the role of King Crimson singer, and they said, well, you're not suitable for this, but... If you have anything else, we'd be interested. That'd be one hell of a combination. Yeah, well, I think Elton John was turned down as well for the role of King Crimson <laughs> singer. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, just imagine how that band could have been. There's a new sensation, a fabulous creation, a danceable solution to teenage revolution. Do the strandlers.
quadrilles, the Madsen and Chief Frills, Boyd with the Begin, the Sambers and Josie, the playing our tune by the pale moon, we're in And oasis, Eskimos and Chinese. If you feel blue, look through who's who. See like Boo-Boo and Nijensky. Do the Stransky. Weary of the walls and mashed potato schmaltz. Next we have another artist associated with the Dandelion label, uh, Kevin Coyne, Marlene. Yes, Kevin Coyne, again, he recorded for Dandelion, but didn't really get any kind of wider acclaim until until the uh, Dandelion had collapsed and uh, he'd gone over to Virgin. Um, Virgin apparently signed him after Simon Draper had heard the uh, Case History album on um, on Dandelion, and uh, this was his first single for Virgin, and you think this should be a hit single. Mm. It's a lot of fun. It's three minutes long. I guess you could say you couldn't really sing, but you can't have everything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great performance from the musicians as well. Um, some of that early Kevin Coyne stuff. I remember an, an NME headline, um, after Kevin Coyne, everything else is just toothpaste. And it does seem a bit... Sometimes I take advantage of, of putting CDs together, and like Roxy, I will always find a space for Kevin Coyne if I can. So this was an early Virgin release? This uh, this came out, on when it's credited as a single on the, on the package that's coming out, it just means that that was the first release. And it came out a month or two later on Marjorie Razorblade, which again is a wonderful, wonderful album. Um, I used to play it when I was young. I remember my father used to get incensed saying, that's not music. Um, and he was probably right, but <laughs> um, in some ways. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it was on the album. It was on the uh, the uh, Marjorie Razorblade album, which is a double album and just an embarrassment of riches again. There's just so much good stuff on there.
we have a, another artist in their prime and uh, that's Roy Wood and Forever and this seemed to, to almost bookend or was towards the, the end of when Roy was in his pomp I think at that point he found it all really easy and as the old phrase has it you know even genius has a sell by date and Roy Wood was, was at the top of his game from about 66 onwards everything he touched turned to gold from about then to 73 even when he put together something that was really uncommercial like um Obviously, the Electric Light Orchestra was his idea initially. He then decided to do a rock and roll band with Wizard, went completely out of time, and then they started having number one singles. And um, Forever is is kind of like a doff of the cap, really, to people like Brian Wilson and Neil Sedaka. Although it is, the course is a complete rip-off of the Crystal single, I wonder, mm. which um, he didn't mention at the time. But uh, within a year or two, that was basically it for his career. And yet he was on top mm. of the world at that point. It's just strange how somebody can go from, from like I say, everything they touch turning to gold to, to not being able to get arrested. It's interesting what sort of leaks out on YouTube and his Top of the Pops appearance of Forever's on there, but there's also, quite bizarrely, his re- rehearsal uh, footage of, of him performing Forever on Top of the Pops prior to the uh, the, the main show. And there you see him with... Uh, all his 50s gear on and, and that sort of thing as well. Yeah, like I say, I think he could do anything at that point and uh, it would become a hit. I mean, when you when you think, look at Forever, it's not really the most commercial thing in the world. It's kind of a little bit self-indulgent, really. It's like, a, say, paying tribute to his uh, formative influences. But again, um, he, he could do anything at that point and, and have a hit record. Uh, and I think eventually he just lost his confidence and he just started... Remaking I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day in various formats.
so now we have Finn Lizzie and Randolph's Tango and this is very interesting track, uh, very idiosyncratic and, and almost a Latin uh, feel. It, it sounds absolutely nothing like the Thin Lizzy you think you know. Uh, yeah. And I can apparently Phil Lennart was convinced it was going to be a hit because they just uh, had Whiskey in the Jar, which was their breakthrough single. And he thought, I've just talked about Roy Wood being on at the top of his game. And I think Phil thought, OK, we've had the hit record and now it's it's glory all the way. And Randolph's Tango came out, a really lyrical song. As you say, it's got that Spanish guitar feel to it. And it bombed completely. Mm. Uh, and it was, a uh, again, we, we look at, back at Thin Lizzy as having this kind of um, unending run of hits in the 70s. But they did nothing for two or three years until wow. um, 76 or so, Boys Are Back in Town. Um, and then suddenly they got a second wind. But for three years, they thought they were about to be dropped by their record company. In fact, they moved over to uh, to Vertigo, didn't they? Because they they kind of ran out of room at uh, mm. Decker. They thought they just one hit wonders. Yeah, from that early period, there's only other than whiskey, the rocker that that seemed to do anything. Certainly over here in the UK. Yeah, although again, I think that had a, had a reputation after the event. Right. I don't think the rocker sold at the time, but it became within three or four years, it became like part of their stage mm. act again, and everybody. Because don't forget, they had the Live and Dangerous album out, yeah. the live album that sold really, really well and gave them an even bigger following. And I think The Rocker was one of the highlights on that. Mm. But at the time, the, the single with The Rocker did nothing and it's too heavy for the radio. So um, when you only had like one station at the time, I know there's one or two independents cropping up, but again, it wasn't really suitable for Capital Radio in London. It was just too heavy. So I think they did struggle to find a way to kind of harness what was obviously an undoubted talent. Um, and it did take a while, and a lot of bands would have split up by then. They did keep plugging away, and eventually it all turned out for them. Senorita took off her vibe inside. She said she's gonna wear skirt the chaps. She's pulling out all the stops to get around our fag. You me why around our beers back at the ranch. Star and flight with a strong of guitar she held and tight. She wants a Randall bag again. Meanwhile, it's worthwhile for Randall to wait till he gets the nerve that he won't hesitate. He doesn't know, but he's just hit the bait. He's just asked if he could make a date. The senorita will be there waiting.
today david is uh, mark the hoople and all the way from memphis and an interesting story of mark the hoople of how they had a, a new life after all the young dudes yeah all the young dudes gave them an audience suddenly again people rhapsodized about their early work and it's great but they were kind of um they were an out and out rock band who had a following but it was a very small one um and all the young Jews would have lost them some of their audience, but it gained them a whole whole new load. And it also gave Ian Hunter the incentive to write his own songs again um, and actually have hit records. Now, Honolulu Boogie was the first post all the young Jews hit, but it was really all the way from Memphis, which uh, gave them a new lease of life after Bowie. And it's, again, it's got Roxy Music, uh, Andy Mackay on, on saxophone. And yeah, again, this is... Um, a highlight of that era for me, um, again, Mott the Hoople, the album that this is from, just called Mott, is a really entertaining set. It's not a long while after that that Mick Ralph's left to form Bad Company, thinking he was kind of like being pushed out of the picture because I think Mott had decided, or the people behind him had decided, that there only needed one front man, and Ian Hunter was the guy. Uh, which left Mick Ralph out, out in the cold a little bit in terms of songwriting. So, um, so yeah, he'd already written Ready for Love, which was a Mott Hoople song and didn't really get much notice, and he took it to Bad Company and teamed up, obviously, with Paul Rogers. And that gave him um, a new audience as well. But, uh, yeah, for a year or two, Mott were really sort of firing on all cylinders, and I think this is their best song from that time. Yeah, I've had um, Verdon Allen from Mot the Hoople, although I think this was the, the album after he left, and it was just interesting how the band's lineup was evolving. Yeah, like I say, I think uh, Mick Ralph's left, Verdon Allen left, but also they got in Mick Ronson, and that kind of put some other people's noses out of joint because they had different management by that point. Mick Ronson was managed by Tony DeFries, the main man, and I think him and, and Ian Hunter were treated as the stars, and they'd travelled separately from the band in limousines <laughs> to basically make their own way. So I, I think that sort of thing, it was... And then, you know, within a few months, Hunter and Ronson had left to form uh, Hunter Ronson Band. So, uh, 
Yeah, it kind of ended on a sour note, really. But this this is them at the peak of their game, I think, all the way from Memphis. Fantastic. Well, uh, let's play all the way from Memphis to close the podcast by Mot the Hoople. Uh, one of the many highlights from the high in the morning British progressive pop sounds of 1973 out on Grapefruit Cherry Red on the 30th of September. Thank you very much for your time, David. Uh, absolute pleasure, Jason, as always. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.